0: Most of you know, or maybe you don't know, um, Grant was my youth pastor uh, many, many moons ago in, in a little town in Alabama. He and Jill came down to serve, um, serve our church and to serve us as students, and it was, a, it was a, one of the most radical uh, transformations of a town, of a community, of a church and ultimately us as students uh, when they came and just poured into that town. Um, You know, Grant is a a huge uh, reason, uh, as I shared with some guys yesterday, he's a huge reason um, that he saw something in me even before I did and had the wherewithal uh, where I was in my life spiritually and as a baseball player and as an athlete to take me uh, my sophomore year of high school up to the University of Alabama and start just getting me to be around uh, uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes and seeing these athletes at the University of Alabama leading uh, and being unashamed about who they were and taking their platform to leverage it to make a difference. And so Grant was, uh, saw that. And so starting my sophomore year in high school, he just started submerging me into that. And it was out of those trips and that moment that I knew God had something greater for me than just being an athlete. It was literally to leverage everything, every opportunity, every platform, every unique situation that I had to try to make a difference. And so I honor you for that. I really do. I appreciate it. you seeing that in me before I even saw it and and, and i 'm largely where I am today um, not only the the, the the trek that I went down in baseball, but uh, certainly as as being able to stand in front of you today and hopefully share just a little bit about what God is and what he 's done in our life uh, and and Grant is largely responsible for seeing that in me and, and encouraging me in that so uh, I hope you understand today just the, the leadership that you have here in your st- in your staff. Um, Bethany said it so well. They have served us and just been so gracious to us and just literally have had a servant's heart since we've been here. So we really, really appreciate that. Um, as, as some of you may know, just from seeing this stuff around, I, I did get to... Uh, really live out my childhood dream. I, I got to be, uh, uh, was, grew up in Demopolis, which was a little small town, and got to go play baseball at the University of Alabama, which was a dream for me. I grew up an Alabama fan, and we had some really unique experiences there. We get to go to the College World Series three out of the four years I was there, so it was, a, it was an incredible run, and coming out of Alabama, I got the opportunity to get drafted by the New York Yankees, and I know that name around these parts is not the most... Uh, <laughs> well-received name. So forgive me for that. But, uh, I do, I do have some stories of playing with the twins. One being you guys will appreciate this. Uh, I am, I will be one day on Tory Hunter's highlight reel. Um, as many of you know, he made a habit out of robbing home runs. And so, I got the opportunity to face Johan Santana at, at the Metrodome. I hit a ball that I thought I hit good enough to get out, but I could see it. It was like a slow motion ESPN highlight. I could see Tory closing in on it, and I'm like, this is going to happen. And sure enough, he goes over and brings it over the fence. So, brings it back. So, if nothing else, I'm on his highlight reel. And um, I should actually have 15 home runs in the big leagues instead of 14. So... Uh, maybe one day you'll see me again here, but it might be uh, on Tory Hunter's highlight reel. But I got the opportunity to play with the Yankees. And, you know, the Yankee organization, to me, I, I didn't grow up a Yankee fan. So when I got there um, and got to see the organization, it truly became I, the respect that I have for that organization is, is just unprecedented. Because of the professionalism and the great players that came before, and they really do a great job of kind of submerging us as players around the former greats. And one of the biggest highlights of my whole time in the Yankee organization was my first spring training. I went in, I was a young kid, you know, and I'm looking around the room, and there's Jeter, and there's, you know, all these guys, Pettit, Rivera. I mean, mean, I'm just blown away at at the magnitude. But then you look up, and here comes Yogi Berra in a uniform, and Whitey Ford, and all these guys, because they're coming to coach us in spring training. So I'm looking around, and I'm going... Oh, my goodness, it's a who's who of just greats, Hall of Famers galore. And so I started thinking about it, you know, and I, I was like, I just let's, don't, don't do anything dumb, you know, just stay over here in the corner and mind your own business. And so, but then I started thinking about it. And I said, you know, there's going to come a day not too long down the road that no one's going to actually believe I was around these guys because I was very aware of my ability or lack thereof to that point. And so I, I was like, you know, I probably started, I need to get some proof So I started thinking, you know, I need to get some guys to autograph some stuff for me, and I'll have it for my collection, and it'll be a neat thing to pass on to my kids one day or however that works. So one day I see Yogi Berra walking through the clubhouse, and I thought, you know, there's no more beloved Yankee in the history of the organization than Yogi. And he's a special human being. I mean, he really taught me a lot about how you treat people. I mean, he literally saw the value in everyone. Didn't matter if it was Jeter or me, he knew us by name. He spent time, and he taught me a tremendous amount about how you just value people and their worth. So I asked him one day, I said, Yogi, would you mind, if I got a jersey of yours made up, would you mind signing it for me? I, I want it for my collection. And in Yogi's typical voice, he said, anything for you, kid. So I go get the jersey. A couple days later, he's walking through the clubhouse, and I said, "Yogi, I got the jersey. If you'll come sign it." So he walks over. We spread the jersey out, and before he gets ready to sign it, I said, "Yogi, now there's one thing I want you to do. I want you to personalize it to me." I said, "This is going to be for my collection. It will not be sold. I want to pass it on to my kids." And he looked at me and said, "I'm not putting your name on it, kid." I said, "But Yogi, understand this is. I, I want this to be special for my family and for my kids." And They can have it and pass it on down to generations. He said, listen, I told you I'm not putting your name on it. He said, you might not want to sell it, but one day your kid might want to, and if your name's on it, it ain't going to be worth nothing. (laughs) And I wish I could tell you I was making that story up, (laughs) but it is 100% the truth. And so the beautiful thing about that is, in a way, I feel like I have kind of my own personal yogiism. you know, all the stuff he said. And it sits at home on a wall proud, and, and, and it, was a, it was a treat. So I got to experience things like that throughout my career, playing with greats like Derek Jeter and, and A-Rod and Rivera and Pettit, and the list goes on and on, and... To be able to call those guys friends is just something that I I can't, I'm going to be honest with you, I I can't fathom. Every morning I I get up and go into my little office there where we have the stuff displayed and have my quiet time, I literally look around and almost without fail, I get emotional because I, I truly can't believe that God allowed a kid from Demopolis that graduated with 17 people in his high school class to live that dream. But here's the thing I want you to know today. That as amazing as that was, and is, and I, is, is the, the fondest memories that I have, those opportunities didn't come without some tremendous challenges. But it also, those, those times, as I told you earlier, I never wanted those opportunities to define who I was. I wanted to be able to take those opportunities and make a difference. And so we had an opportunity um, As I was coming through the system and finally got the word, I got, in 2004, I got caught up uh, my last, toward the end of the year, it was my uh, first time in the big leagues, and actually my first at bat um, in the major leagues. We were facing the Red Sox, and I get thrown in the game late, we're getting beat bad, and Joe Torrey says, hey, go hit for A-Rod, and he's trying to clear the bench, we're getting beat really bad. so as I'm going to the plate, I hadn't had it bat in two weeks. You can imagine the adrenaline. It's my first major league at bat. We're in Boston, the Yankee-Red Sox rivalry. And, and Alex looks at me and says, look, he throws all cutters. It's just all cut fastballs. Just sit on it, be ready. And I'm thinking to myself, I hadn't had it bat in two weeks. I'm not going to take any time. I need as many swings as I can get off this guy. So first pitch, the ball starts kind of middle in and I'm like, I'm going to swing and I'm thinking it better cut or I'm going to, the ball's going to hit me in the hands, you know. And sure enough, the ball cuts across the plate and I hit it. And when I hit it, I hit it really well. And I'm thinking, oh my goodness, I did it. Like I hit a home, I'm, this ball's getting out of here. It's a home run, my first at bat. So as I'm running down first base, I, I look down and as the, you know, the green monster, if you're not aware, it's pretty tall in Fenway. I mean, that wall in left field is really, really tall so I'm running the ball still traveling while I look down to try to find first base and I look back up to see the ball well as I look to see the ball I trip over first base <laughs> not to the point of literally on my face but very close I mean I'm stumbling around first and my wife can attest to all of this she was there probably with her head like oh no <laughs> so I trip over first so I'm stumbling 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 when I finally gather myself all I see is the ball back on the field and uh, Dave Roberts and, and Manny Ramirez are kind of closing in on it to toss the ball back in. So I'm thinking, man, I didn't, it didn't get out, you know. So I thought, hit top of the wall, double, no big deal. So I stop at second base, and I'm standing there. And the umpire just starts going. He's looking at me like this. And he says, it's a home run. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I just take off running. So what had happened was in the midst of my gracefulness of falling over first base, I didn't see that the ball had hit like the third row of the bleachers against the wall and come back in. So it was a home run, but all I saw was the ball on the field. And I'm going, you're not throwing me out at third. (laughs) So now I've tripped over first. I've stopped at second on a home run. I mean, we're halfway to a disaster, right? Right. So I finally get to home, you know, and of course I'm excited. So my first pitch, first at bat in the major leagues was a home run. And at that time, it was like one of only, I think, 21 in the history of major league baseball that had done that. So it's a pretty cool feat. And you can imagine the confidence and the big head. So as I'm rounding third, you know, my wife's in the stands and just emotional. And I touch home. I look up and right in front of me is Jeter, A-Rod, and Sheffield to congratulate me. I mean, I have the picture at home. It was pretty impressive, Right. So I'm slapping them five and I'm just feeling like they hung the moon until they moved out of the way. And I see Joe Torrey standing there like this. <laughs> and I get through him and he's in and, and, and the walk from home to the dugout at Fenway's forever. It's like three miles, you know, I mean, it's just like, you're still walking and he never moves from this spot. <laughs> and so when I finally get to him, he goes, what was that? He said, son, act like you've done it before. And I said, done it before? It was my first pitch I've ever seen. <laughs> so this was, my, this was my career. You know, this is how it started. But it was truly an amazing, as you can imagine, I mean, for a kid to do that. You can't make that up. I mean, it's a, it's a, it truly is a storybook dream. And so getting to have those types of memories for me is special. But again, as I want to say, those opportunities didn't come without tremendous challenges. If you got your Bible, I want you to turn with me today to John chapter 6. And we're going to look at a couple verses here for just a moment. And if you don't have it, you can just follow along with me. But I want to set up this story in John chapter 6. We're going to start in verse 66. But I want to set up this story real quickly. About what's going on before we get to this point. And most of us uh, in, in the whole chapter of this, there's a lot of things that go on in this chapter, and it starts off in the first part of this chapter, and it talks, and it's the story of where Jesus feeds the 5,000, or some think it's Jesus feeds about 20,000 with just the five loaves and the two fish. It's a story we've all heard. It's an amazing miracle of God just using something and taking it and just literally coming to meet the physical needs of these people as they were following him as he was teaching and healing and preaching. And the masses were coming to see what he did. So he met this need. And from that, in that story, then you, you get to a point where Jesus, literally, the disciples go out and they get in a boat and at night and the storm comes and Jesus is walking on water and they're afraid and he tells them, don't be afraid, and he calms the water. And then from there, you, you see, you get to a point, uh, not after that point, so the, the, the crowd's still following him and he really feels like, hey, I've got to continue to move because they're coming to try to take me to be king. They're going to come force me to be king and he knew that his job was not done. And so as he's walking to this, as he's going on his journey, and the masses are following him, what he starts to recognize is that the people are following him because of all the stuff that they've seen. I mean, you can imagine. I mean, here's a man who's literally meeting a physical need. They were, I mean, people were in this, in this moment of needing food, and he provides it in a miraculous way. And they see all these healings going on, and they hear all this teaching. Well, he sees this as an opportunity as the thousands are following him to then start to impress on them what really is important. And I want us to look at that for a moment. Because up to this point, until we get to this point, here's what Jesus starts saying. And I'm just going to paraphrase some of this for the sake of time. But he starts using the illustration of the bread that he's fed the 5,000 with. And he he starts to tell them that you followed me, not because of the signs you've seen, but, but because of the things that I've done. And and he starts to tell them that, listen, the, the hope is not in this physical bread, but I am the bread of life. And anyone who partakes of me will have eternal life. And he keeps reiterating this to the disciples over and over and over again. And they just, for the most part, they just can't grasp it. They just can't catch it. And he even gets to a point later on in the chapter where he gets even a little more graphic. And he said, anyone who eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood will have eternal life. And the disciples get to a moment and there's, there's a large majority of them when they get to this point in the, the deal. They followed him and now all of a sudden he's turned from doing things for them as much as he is trying to tell them where real hope lies. And they they got to a point, and it says most of the disciples, they turned and they went back to where they came from, and there were only 12 left. Now, I want you to get the picture of this. There's some scholars that think that literally when this whole thing started, there were over 20,000 people that that were there that day when he fed the 5,000. In less than 24 hours, things changed, changed dramatically. People went from following the show, getting their needs met, trying to see what they could do, to the, but then when it came to the biggest, the most important decision, the moment of crisis, so to speak, in their life, where he's trying to say, listen, this is not all there is. I can meet your physical needs, and I want to do that, but this is not all there is. And when he gave them something that didn't quite make sense, and they even made that statement. They said, I, I don't even understand what he's saying. It doesn't make sense. And so what they did was all but 12 turned, and it says they went back to where they came from. They went back to where they came from. For some of them, it was going back to their old way of life. For some of them, it was going back to old relationships. I mean, you can imagine. They'd come to follow the show, and now all of a sudden, they've gone back. I think that's such a beautiful picture of what we see so much in, in where we are today, that we see people time and time again, and we run to Jesus... And we're, we, we, got, we have needs that we won't met. And sometimes he meets those physical needs and sometimes he has a greater plan. But the reality is we have a decision to make. When he takes us to a point of things that we don't quite understand, are we going to continue to follow? Or are we going to do like the masses? And are we going to turn and go the other way and go back to where we came from? And so that leads us into verse 66 here, and I'm just going to read a couple verses, and here's what happened. And so here's Jesus' response, as he's seen all the people turn away, and there's only 12 left. You can imagine, I, I just put myself and go, was he brokenhearted? Or did he know all along? I'm sure he knew all along. We know God's omnipresent. He knows everything. But still, there had to be a part of him It's like, all these people followed, and I'm left with 12. And so he asked this question. He says, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. That's when they turned and went back. And it says, so Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him and said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. I want us to look at this picture for a moment. Peter saw everything that everyone else saw. He saw what God was performing miracles. He saw God meeting needs. He saw all this. But when Jesus started saying that I am the bread of life, that I am your true hope, that it's nothing that I can give you that's going to bring you that eternal hope, but it literally is you taking my life The sacrifice that I'm going to give and you receive me, that is your hope. And Peter got it. And here's what he came up with. It almost seems like a moment of like, it's an aha moment. It almost seems like a moment of just, he's come to a a moment of just kind of exasperation, so to speak. And he goes, where else would we go? Here's what I want to submit to you today. That every one of us in here have a moment. There is something in front of us today. For some of it's its relationships with children that maybe they've, they've gone another way. For some of it's a marriage on the brinks, for some of it it's sickness, for some of it's it's financial trouble. And here's what I would submit to you today: Where else are you going to go? There's many opportunities, but there's only one logic solution. And it's what Peter said when he says, "Lord, where else would we go? You have the words." Of eternal life. Just a few years ago, in the midst of all this career that we were walking down, and honestly, it was a moment. I had oh four. I had my first at bat in two thousand five. I was kind of up and down in the minor leagues and the big leagues. And that off season going into two thousand six, I get a call from the Yankees. It says, "Andy, we want you to know that this spring training, you're gonna, when we open the season, you're going to be on our opening day roster." You don't have to come to spring training to fight for a job. You just come get ready to play. And for me, as you can imagine, that was a call that you've been waiting for on a li- for a lifetime. You know, the th- I've made it. Everything I've worked for has happened. And so at this, just about the same time that we had found this out, my wife and I also found out that we were expecting our first child. And so at, you know, at the time, t- mid-20s, you know, for, life couldn't get any better. The career is right where you want it. We're starting a family. Life could not get any better. And as we go in the first time to go to, see, to the doctor to, to, to see the ultrasound and look at our, our child for the first time, in a moment's notice, much like this story here, in 24 hours, things drastically changed. As the doctor walks in and we're expecting to see the picture for our, of the, the little baby for the first time, the doctor comes in and says, I got some bad news. This pregnancy's not going to, it's not going to last. And there's many of you in this, in this room today that have even walked through that scenario. Or you have somebody that you know, that you love, that's walked through that scenario. And you know the disappointment and the hurt. It's that moment of crisis. Where else would we go? But the news didn't stop there. The doctor looked at us and said, not only is this child not going to make it, but Bethany, you've developed a rare form of cancer because of it. And so what went from bad news went to the worst possible news that we could ever imagine. In one moment, we're walking in to celebrate the picture for the first time, and we're walking out with fear of what's next. Fear of, is she going to live? Fear of, what does this mean? The confusion, the hurt, the disappointment. Some of you in here today know what I'm talking about. In a moment, just like in this story, things changed. And so as the doctors came to us and said, we're going to do this procedure and, you know, in a week, life will be back to normal and you can move on and you can have children, all this, that week turned into the darkest four months of our life. I was getting ready to leave for spring training. Bethany had started, the the first treatment didn't work, so they started another treatment and as they're giving her that treatment. It's not working after a few weeks, so they start another treatment. Now it's time for me to go to spring training. And I'm having just this internal crisis of what do I do? You know, I want to be here with my wife, but I've got to provide and all this stuff that's going on. And honestly, for me, what I started doing was isolating myself from everybody and everything. I put on a front. Like everything was okay. I wanted to be strong for her, so I tried to speak life into that situation. I didn't let anybody else know what was going on. Get to spring training. She's going through a, just a, a, you know, a higher level of chemo that's starting to work. So we think, oh, man, toward the end of spring training, she, the cancer's going to be gone. We're going to get to, we get to the last week of spring training. She calls me. She's saying, Andy, my body's throwing a resistance to this treatment. We're starting all over. So here we are getting ready for the season to start. And I, I'm sitting there. I've told no one in the organization what's going on. Again, Isolation. Can I tell you today, the enemy wants nothing more than you to be isolated. In the middle of your darkness, in the middle of situations, in the middle of things, the enemy wants nothing more than you to be in isolation because you're ineffective. And I needed people. And so as we get ready for the season to start, the doctors literally tell us, they say, we're going to try it. We've never taken a case this far. We're, it's literally an experiment here. We're, we're, we're going to experiment with a thing and it literally becomes a fight for your life. And so as the season starts, it's going to be two weeks of treatment before we can ever get the results back. We're up in Toronto getting ready to play the Blue Jays, and she's going to the doctor to see if this treatment's working. And I've gone to the mall just so I can get my mind off of it. You, you can imagine the anxiousness you've been there. For three months, it's been nothing but bad news. And when the phone rang, it was just that moment, and I just knew it was going to be more bad news. And she called, and she said, Andy, they still don't have it. And for the first time in my life, I was in a place of brokenness like I had never experienced. There had been times of difficulty and disappointment. There had been challenges in our life, but I had never been this broken. Literally, where I physically couldn't go on. I sat down outside on the sidewalk outside of the mall there in Toronto just so I could gather myself. I got back to my hotel and I went in the room and I just laid on the floor and I just wept. Like I had never wept in my life of brokenness because I didn't, know, I didn't know what to do. I was scared. I was hurt. I was angry. Just, just this flood of emotions of, God, what do we do? Why are we here? We've been serving you and following you, and my wife's been all over leading worship, and life is supposed to look like this, and now we've got this, and there was just so much. But for four months in isolation, I tried to play a part. And it was in that moment of brokenness where I said, Lord, you've got to give me something to hang on to. You've got to give me something of hope. And the Lord took me to the book of Job, and he reminded me of the story of Job. And if you know the story of Job, it says Job was a righteous man. He had great family, great wealth. He followed and served the Lord. But in a moment, God allowed just ridiculous tragedy to come on his life to where he literally lost everything. The only thing he had left was his wife who was actually telling him, you should curse God and die. And so as Job's walking through this moment, he never let go. And if you read the book of Job, for literally 36 chapters, Job is just crying out to God. And, and there's moments where he, he makes statements like, though he slay me, I still trust in him. And then the next minute he's turning and he's basically asking God, why is this happening? And he's just, he, for 36 chapters, he's just pouring out his heart. He's pouring out his heart and God says nothing. And then toward the end of that book, the Lord finally speaks. And he says, then the Lord said, and for the next two chapters, he takes Job on a journey. And he literally just reminds Job of everything that he's ever done. He says, Job, where were you when I created the foundations of the earth? And he just starts reminding Job of everything that he is. And just like Bethany said earlier, when we started worship, This relationship with God doesn't doesn't exclude us from difficulty. But what it does do is give us hope in the middle of it. Without this relationship, without knowing who Jesus is, without being so close to him that we don't have hope in the middle of the storm. And so Job, after listening to God talk for two chapters, he speaks up and he says, You know, until this moment, my ears have heard, but now my eyes see. That's where I was that moment that day. From seven years old when I accepted Christ and I had surrendered my baseball career and I'd surrendered other things in my life, I didn't realize there was one thing that I was still hanging on to and it was my own family. I trusted God with my career. I trusted God with everything else. But I wasn't quite sure that he could handle the dynamics of my own family. And it came to a moment of crisis where it was literally where else would I go? And I had to let go. And in that moment, in that hotel, I laid on my face before God. And this is what I said, Lord, whether she lives or whether she dies, we're going to serve you and honor you because here's what I figured out. Here's what Job figured out. And here's what Peter figured out. Where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. Because here's what I figured out, that whether she lives or dies, whether God healed her, and he did, by the way, temporarily, and I say temporarily because whether she would have died at 24 years old or dies at 124 years old, if my hope, if the substance and my hope and everything that I have is based on this earthly situation, if that's all the hope that I have, the question I have to ask myself is what happens when it's gone? Because it will be gone. If a hope that I have is in who I am as an athlete or in my baseball career, what happens when it's gone? If the hope is, if the only hope that I have is in my relationship or even in the struggles, the things that you want to see come to pass right now, your kids come back home or your finances restored, all these things are good. And can I say that's what God wants in your life? But if that's, if that's as far as we trust Him, which is where I was at the moment, then we have to ask ourselves the question, what happens when that's gone? And it's really that moment of crisis where we have to say, where else would we go? And that moment when I spoke those words, I called Bethany and I said, listen, I I want you to know that we have served God and followed God through some good times and bad times. But here's what I know. That the God... Of Abraham and Isaac is the God that loves us. And the God that spoke this stuff that made Peter understand is the God that we're gonna serve and follow because He's our only hope. He's the only hope we have. There's many places we can go, but there's only one place of hope. And literally, when we spoke those words, four weeks later, She was cancer-free, and a year and a half later, God allowed us to have this little girl sitting right here and brought her into this world. But here's what I want you to know. Notice I said that we had to make those decisions and commitments long before God ever restored health, long before God restored children. It was a decision that we had to make. Here's what I want to ask you today, this simple question. The same thing that Peter used to answer a question when he said, where else would you go? That's the question I have for you today. Where else would you go? There's people walking through some challenges and and disappointments and hurts and, and stuff that even I can't understand. Can I tell you today, he wants to be so far in the middle of your stuff if you'll just let him. He wants to be that hope for you. He wants to be in the middle of your situation. But here's what you have to do. You have to just come to that moment where you go, where else would we go? Jesus, you have the hope of eternal life. You have the hope of my future. You have the hope of everything that I am. And so as the team's making their way back up here and we get ready to close this out, here's what I would ask us to do today. I want us just to reflect for a moment. What, what is it that's going on in your life? Is it a relationship? Is it finances? Is it past pain? Is it sickness? Is it disease? What is it? What is it? And the question is, where else would you go? We all have an extraordinary opportunity, every, every moment that we have breath, to literally get to a point where we stand before an almighty God and say, God, I'm yours. I can't do this on my own. Guys, in the middle of that, someone that took pride as a professional athlete to be able to do things that most other people couldn't do, I couldn't do it anymore. I couldn't go on. I couldn't fix the situation. In the middle of my darkness, all I needed in that moment was hope. All the other stuff I really didn't care about. I didn't care if I struck out three times. I didn't care what my house looked like. I didn't care how much money I had. I just needed to feel the presence of God in that moment. And can I tell you, when I cried out to God in that moment, I've never felt a peace because here's what I know. You can only speak those words and believe those words to say whether she lives or dies if God's in the middle of that. That's not me. That's him. So here's the question I have for you today. Where else would you go? Where else would you go? He has the hope of eternal life. Here's what I ask you to do today if you would just stand with me for a moment. And as we get ready to close here, I want to give you this opportunity. Maybe there's, maybe there's, you've come in here today and you had no idea. You were carrying just some tremendous hurt and some pain, disappointment, discouragement, defeat, even death. And it's weighing so heavy on you. And you've been so hurt and broken. And you've been so disappointed. Can I tell you this today? It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay to be honest and real with God. Can I tell you to this day, even though God's allowed us to have a child, and even though God's, the hurt that I still feel, is it's still there. But he's my hope in the middle of my hurt. He's the only place that I know to go. And so here's what I would ask for you today. If you're here today, And you say, you know what, Andy, I just need a a touch of that hope. Can Can I just speak to you for a moment and say, it's one prayer away. It's one moment away. It's not something you have to work for. The work's already been done. He did that. It's not something that you have to kind of clean some things up to come to. He says, just come as you are. I'll make it right. He would love nothing more. It's why he died. There's no one else in in my life that's ever laid his life down for me. Not even the middle of my darkest moment. Was there anyone else willing to take my place? But he did. That's hope. That's hope. So as you're there, I just ask you, bow your heads. And I want to just ask you this. If you're here today... And maybe you don't have a real and personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And you say, I I need some hope. I've been trying to do this thing on my own. Here's what I would ask for you today. I would just ask in this moment with every head bowed and every eye closed. Would you just slip your hand up? I I just want to, I want to see you. I want to be able to speak life into you for just a moment. With nobody looking around, thank you for those hands. Anyone else, thank you for those hands. Here's what I want you to know. If you've had your hand lifted today, that in this moment, I'm about to lead you in just a, just a simple prayer. And I would just ask that in this moment, you just repeat this prayer right there where you are. You can say it out loud. You can say it in your heart. But if you pray this prayer in me in your heart, can I I give you this confidence today that Jesus Christ is coming to be in the middle of your situation? So if that's you today, just repeat this prayer after me. Say, Dear Jesus, I know that you are my hope. I know I've been trying to walk through this life on my own, but I need you. And in this moment, I receive the gift of salvation. And I ask that you come into my heart, that you change me, you make me whole. And God, that every single moment that I live, I want to live in relationship with you. Be my Lord, be my Savior, and be my friend. And Father, right now, as we get ready to just sing this last song to you, God, I just pray that this moment is just an anthem, just a a moment of celebration, just a moment. God, thank you for the ones here today who were willing to say, God, I need you. And I pray as we get ready to sing this last song, that everyone in this room sings this song to acknowledge your goodness. That maybe our situations aren't good, and maybe our challenges aren't good, but God, you are a good, good Father.